Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 11. Just by way of reminder, the book of Revelation contains seven cycles that describe the time frame between Jesus' first and second comings. Tonight, with the end of chapter 11, we're going to finish the third cycle. That will bring us to chapter 12, God willing, next week, and the fourth cycle. So much of what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see elsewhere in the book of Revelation, because keep in mind, it's seven cycles. What we have, at, in fact, in the seventh seal, in the last half of Revelation 11, is Jesus' second coming and the salvation and judgment that he brings. Major themes repeated over and over again. That's your Bible. Major themes repeated over and over again. That's the scriptures. So we come then to the seventh seal, now if you are a trumpet. Now if you remember the sixth trumpet wasn't sounded or was sounded way back in chapter 9 verse 13. And thus from chapter 9 verse 14 all the way up to chapter 11 verse 14 we had that extended break. And so we're going to see in the sounding, with the sounding of the second, the seventh trumpet, there's fundamentally two things. We'll see in verse 15, a kingdom, and then in verse 16 to 19, a response. A kingdom and a response. Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, this is the response, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Similar themes that we've seen already. Jesus' second coming, and with that coming, there's salvation and there's damnation. And those are really wed together beautifully, as we'll see in verse 19, especially. So let's start, first of all, with the kingdom in verse 15. Two things are suggested about this kingdom. First, it's universal, and second, eternal. First, it's Universal. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is one of the few times when the Greek word kurios, translated Lord, is applied to the Father. Typically, it's applied to Christ. Here, it's obviously applied to the Father. Our Lord, kurios, Father, and his Christ. Rather, this is some rich Christological Trinitarian theology here, and I'm going to have to refrain myself from giving you one of the seven lectures that I gave in Cuba on the Trinity. 
But the question here becomes, how can the kingdoms of this world become God's kingdoms when he already rules? Notice the text says that they become his. Aren't they his already? Do we live in a world that's ruled by Satan? Is it some type of dualistic morality here? There's God and then there's the devil. Well, surely we know that the scripture does speak of this world in some sense as Satan's kingdom. And you know that Augustine made famous the uh, imagery of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is controlled by Satan. The kingdom of God is controlled by Christ. That's how the text puts it. The father and his Christ, that is his anointed one, Christ, who was raised from the dead and given authority on heaven and earth. So what we have here is a need for a distinction that our fathers made between the kingdom of God's grace, power, and glory. Almost all theological controversy can be remedied if we keep in mind our father's distinctions. In fact, we could say that the Christian religion is a religion of distinctions. And the problem is, is most Christians are either too ignorant or lazy to learn those distinctions. And I don't want to be unkind, but that's the truth. And it doesn't take much to learn them just by a good systematic theology and reading. And you'll find that these old men made the distinction between God's kingdom of grace, power, and glory because of texts like this. Now, you know that the kingdom of grace refers to God's rule or reign over the hearts of his people in the church. That's his reign or rule over his people on earth. And then there's the kingdom of power, and that's his reign or rule over his enemies. And in part, as a judgment, he's allowed Satan to rule, have a part in ruling over his enemies. And then the kingdom of glory is what's here referred to. And that's the kingdom of heaven. That's when heaven will be on earth. And so while it's true, brethren, in one sense, God does rule over the kingdoms of heaven presently. Don't get me wrong. That's a clear biblical teaching. It's also true that the kingdoms of this world at present are at enmity toward God. And God in judgment has given, given them over to the reign, the tyrannical reign of Satan. But there's coming a time when all of the kingdoms of the, of the world will become the kingdoms of God in what our fathers referred to as the kingdom of glory. And that's what's happening in this passage. When God's gracious rule, brethren, shall extend from coast to coast, when his gracious rule will no longer be fought against, resisted, scorned, and hated as it is now. That's what's referenced here. But then notice, not only is this kingdom of glory that's coming, universal, but it's eternal. And he shall reign for 1,000 years. Oh, I'm sorry. He shall reign forever and ever. By he is meant the Father who reigns in Christ. And so again, we come to something of a theological knot. Why is it or how is it that the Father reigns and not the Son? 
And this, of course, texts like this have led some in the history of the church to develop all manner of errors. Uh, one famous error was um, derived from texts like this that speak of the father ruling or reigning way back in the second century. And it eventually took upon itself the name subordinationism. And subordinationism is just the heir or heresy that the father and the son are not equal in authority, that the son is eternally subordinate to the father in authority. And they would prove that from texts like this or texts like this. Think of this one, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he, that is the son, delivers the kingdom of God to the father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. It's really a similar text, isn't it, than the one before us. There's coming a time when when the son will deliver up the kingdoms of this world to his father. Okay, that's a fact. That's a fact of 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and it's the fact of this text. Uh, Revelation 11 and 15. So, but doesn't that then teach subordinationism? Doesn't that teach that the son is somehow inferior to the father? No, it doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that the son is inferior to the father, essentially. But it does teach that the Christ... See, again, we come back to distinctions. Brother, I'm telling you, the Christian religion is a religion of distinctions. Because while we do not believe that the Son is essentially or eternally subordinate to the Father, we do believe that the Christ, the God-man, in time, in creation, in the work of redemption, is subordinate to the Father. Now keep in mind this distinction. This is kind of a a bigger termed distinction. Um, if, If it goes over your head, then just let it, but it's an important one to get. And that is the distinction between the ontological and economic trinity. The ontological, economic trinity. Ontology is the study of being, right? So when we speak of the ontological trinity, we're talking about God as he is essentially and eternally. There's no subordination ontologically. The Father and the Son are one. They're God. But when we speak of the economic, see, what is economic? Economic speaks of works, right? The work of God in time, in redemption. And with reference to God economically speaking, the Son, as he's viewed incarnate, is subordinate to the Father. And this is why the Father gives, this is why the Son, not the Father, is the one who gives the kingdom to the other. Nowhere do we read that the Father then gives, at the end, the consummation of salvation. We don't read that the Father gives the kingdom to the Son. We read the Son, Christ, viewed incarnate, gives the kingdoms of this world to the Father. Why? Because there is an economic subordination. But there's no ontological or essential subordination. 
to, to say that the Son is essentially, ontologically, subordinate to the Father is to be heretical. That's a very bad thing. See, again, people don't know how to interpret text of the Bible because they throw out the window these historical distinctions. And that's why a lot of people don't know how to interpret texts like the saying of our Savior who said, I'm now going back to the Father who is greater than I. See, the, the old heretics use texts like that to teach that the Son is a lesser, somehow or another, a lesser God than the Father. Brother, that's a, that's a terrible heresy. But it's not a heresy to say that the Son viewed incarnate economically in time as the God-man, the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Stop and think of us right in this text. The Lord's Christ, the Father's Christ, the Father's Messiah. He came as a man, died, lived, did everything that he did in what? Submission to the Father. The Father didn't come in submission to the Son. The Son came in submission to the Father. And thus, in the consummation, which this verse speaks about, verse 15, the Son gives the kingdoms of this world to the Father. So it just simply says, brethren, that while there's no essential or eternal subordination, there is an economic or we can say temporal subordination between the Father and the Son. And so we find that the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of God the Father as given to Him by God the Son. All right, that's all found in verse 15. We find an eternal, universal kingdom. Now notice, secondly, the response of those in heaven to this grand fact. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying. So what we have here is the response of those who are in heaven. Now you remember the 24 elders is nothing more or less than the summation, the, the, the sum total of the elect. The sum total of the elect from the Old and New Testaments. That's why you have 24. 12 tribes represent the Old Testament elect. 12 apostles represent the New Testament elect. 12 plus 12 equals... Carry the, no, you don't carry nothing, do you? 12 plus 12 equals 24, right? Yeah, and that's why there's 24 elders. It's the church. Old and New Testaments. And they're praising God. And they're fundamentally praising God for two reasons. They're praising God for the judgment of God upon their enemies and the salvation of God upon his people. This is a twofold response. Now let me go through them very quickly. Verse 18. First notice judgment of sinners. And then salvation of saints. The nations, verse 18, were angry. And your wrath has come. 
and the time of the dead that they should be judged. All right? So notice how this song of praise weaves together both judgment and salvation. Because so far we, we have a description of the nations who are angry. We also have a description of God's wrath who's come. The phrase, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, we're going to see is really kind of a, a, a bridge between the, the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous. In other words, everybody who's dead will be raised and judged. We'll see that in a moment. Some will go to eternal damnation, others to eternal life. So you have, right, kind of sandwiched right in between the judgment of the wicked and the rewarding of the righteous, you have what we call the universal bodily resurrection of all men, right? When Jesus comes back, all men will be raised from the dead. We know that. And then it goes on to say that you should reward, okay, so there's a, there's, the, your wrath is going to be poured out upon some of those who will be raised, and, and your blessing will be poured out upon others, it goes on to say that you should reward your servants and prophets and saints and those who fear your, your name, small and great. We'll come back to that. And then it goes back again to the judgment of the lost and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now notice how the wicked's described. They're described as angry. It's really a contrast. You may not see it, but there's really a twofold contrast here. The, the first contrast is between the wrath of man and the wrath of God. You can see it in verse 18. The nations were wrathful, were angry. And God was angry or wrathful. And so the idea is that of retribution. God repaying back the evil, the, the, the wicked, repaying back the wicked for their anger with his anger. That's... The most unbelievably graphic statement, isn't it? The nations were angry and your wrath has come. Okay, and then it goes on to describe them as those who destroy the earth at the end of the verse. Now that doesn't mean they chopped down all the trees and polluted the lakes. As evil as that may be. The point here is they're hating God's people. They're angry with God's people and they're destroying them. Brethren, just keep in mind what we saw a couple weeks ago. Remember just uh, a few verses up, we saw the last time in Revelation, we saw the two witnesses. And who were the two witnesses? The church. What happened to the two witnesses? This wicked, evil world killed them and left their, and left their bodies in the streets. That's what they think. That's what the world thinks of God's people. And this is the whole point here. God is going to repay, repay with distress upon those who cause you distress. That's how Paul puts it to the Thessalonians. He's going to repay them in turn. That's the, that's the point here. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's the idea here. Because they're angry and they, vent, and they vent that anger upon God's people. In other words, his judgments upon them primarily have to do with their mistreatment of his people. And that's why, again, you have, you have recompense at the end of 18. Destroy those who destroy the earth. He's angry with those who are angry. He destroys those who destroy. You see the... The, the uh, comparison there. 
And again, they destroy the earth in that they destroy God's people. It's actually a, a, um, a, an allusion back to Jeremiah 51.25, where we read, Behold, I am against you. This is God speaking to the Babylonians. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroy the whole earth. Now, the Babylonians there are going to be judged because they destroyed the whole earth, um, which primarily has reference to his people. Remember, the Babylonians took them captive, and uh, they, they left Jerusalem desolate. And so God is going to destroy them. And the idea here is the same. Because the earth destroyed his people, God will in turn destroy the earth. But in the middle of all this, you have the salvation of saints. Verse 18, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward. Now again, he's still making the playoff of recompense, right? Payback, reward. Everybody's being rewarded for their deeds in this text, brethren. Surely we know that. It's underscoring God's justice in the universal judgment of all men. Those who do evil will justly be repaid in turn. Those who do good will justly be repaid in turn. You know, a lot of Christians, I think, and I understand why, uh, are hesitant to speak of rewards. But, you know, the Bible speaks of rewards, and it speaks of it quite frequently, in fact just have to remember that all rewards are gracious in nature. And that's even implied here, isn't it? When it says uh, that you should reward your slaves, servants. A servant or a slave doesn't. When, when I, remember what Jesus said at the end of the day, when you're a faithful servant or slave, all you can do at the end of the day is say is that we are unprofitable servants. We're just doing what we're told to do and what we've been uh, commissioned to do. And, and in our case, we've been given the grace to do, brethren. Think of it like that. All, all the good deeds that we do, we do by grace, and then they're rewarded. And I think in reward, it means, for mostly, it means God gets all the glory. Brother, what a better reward than that. Yeah, and that's going to be tied into our eternal bliss and joy and all the stuff that's so beautifully symbolized in verse 19. Verse 19 is one of those great texts in your Bible. It's just one of those revelation texts that stuffed at the end of Revelation 11. Some, I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody that says, my life verse is Revelation eleven nineteen. But you know what? Revelation eleven nineteen. that's a life verse. This afternoon, I checked to see if Spurgeon preached a sermon on it, and surely he did two times. Remember on Sunday, I said he preached two sermons on, on John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. He also preached two sermons on Revelation eleven nineteen. You should go and read those. You can get them in sermons, in Spurgeon's sermons. Okay, so we have salvation spoken of as a reward. Now notice who's rewarded. I think these phrases are descriptive of all of God's people. Prophets, he, notice he says, uh, servants, prophets, saints, then he summarizes them, those who fear your name, small and great. Brethren, that, that's just another way of saying 
all the saints, all of God's people. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher, a missionary. It doesn't matter if you're a house, if you're a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're old, young, rich, famous, rich, poor, educated or not. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian, you'll be rewarded. And you'll be rewarded in one sense or another alongside the rest. It, we, we don't find here really necessarily uh, two levels of citizenship in heaven. Uh, because remember at the beginning of the book we saw that what do they do with all their crowns, all, all their rewards? They all cast them where? At the feet of the one who is alone worthy. Now I, I personally, and, and you can read this in like in the Puritans and the Reformers, they, 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 they do see degrees of rewards in heaven. But that doesn't translate into who gets the bigger house. You know, sometimes we jokingly say, if I can just get a little hut in heaven, I'll be happy. But brother, you're going to have more than a hut. You're going to have a, you're going to have a mansion right alongside Spurgeon and the rest. What about a young Christian who dies at 15 and doesn't do, quote, much, but just serves God faithfully in his home and loves obeys his parents out of love for Jesus. When he dies, you know what? He's going to be sandwiched right between Whitfield and Spurgeon. But when they spoke of degrees of rewards, it just meant that they would have perhaps, to use that imagery, more crowns to cast at the feet of Jesus. And we, and we want that. Don't get me wrong. And that's why oftentimes rewards are put out as an incentive, brethren. It's, it's not the place to have a, a lesson, a, a, a biblical, theological lesson on rewards, but this text would be one text we'd consider, wouldn't it, if we were to do that? Really, the rewards, if you just read the passage through, the rewards reference is, is told us in the passage, really, if you think about it. Here's the reward, ultimately. We're going to be in heaven where the temple of God is opened and the ark of his covenant is seen. Okay, that's our reward. Now, what that means, we have to come to in a moment. But there's our reward, brethren, and, and uh, everybody will see it and will see it equally. So there's not some who will be put on the other side of the mountain and they can just get a glimpse of it occasionally. No, we're all going to have the same privilege and sight of this open temple and God's covenant, Ark of His covenant. Listen to what Beale said, I think rightly, in, in, in trying to get at the nature of this reward. He said, the reward is the saints' deliverance, their reception of a position of reign with Christ, and all the blessings that follow. And uh, like I said, verse, thir- uh, verse 19 is a fitting end to this third section. Remember, this is the end of the third of seven sections. Um, It's also the end of the trumpets, but it's the end of that third section because it brings together both ideas of salvation and damnation. Verse 19 brings both of those together. Of course, you have salvation in the imagery of the temple and the ark, but remember, as we've seen a moment, the ark of the covenant not only spoke of salvation, but it also was God's throne and at times spoke of the judgment of God upon his enemies because that's what's meant when it says and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail that's this typical language used throughout the Bible, prophets in the book of Revelation that speaks of God's judgments upon the wicked 
There's salvation, 19A, and damnation, 19B. Listen to a couple. Well, let me, before I say that, I'll give you some testimonies from some of the commentators. I think the imagery, the imagery behind verse 19 and, and then keep 19 in the, in the bigger context of seven trumpets, right? Because 19 is kind of the pinnacle, the climax of the seventh trumpet. And you have the Ark of the Covenant. Just keep it. Ask yourself the question, brother. I made this point some time ago. Where in the Old Testament do we find seven trumpets, the Ark, salvation and damnation brought together? I think the imagery here is that of Jericho. If remember the seven trumpets went before the Ark, which brought both destruction and salvation. Both destruction and salvation. Destruction upon God's enemies and salvation of his people. Listen to first Dennis Johnson. He said, the seven trumpets of God, like those at Jericho, have gone before the ark of his covenant and shattered all resistance. William Hendrickson. When this ark is now seen, the covenant of grace in all its sweetness is realized in the hearts and lives of God's children. I'm going to come back to that first part of his quotation because he so beautifully kind of gets at what's all, at least in part, what's meant by a sight of this covenant, uh, or, or this Ark of the Covenant. But then he goes on to say this, but for the wicked, that same Ark, remember it's all in verse 19, that same Ark, which is God's throne, is a symbol of wrath. Also, this wrath will now be fully revealed. So there's a, a great revelation of verse 19 of God's love and, and, and his wrath. Brethren, how can it be that we can think of one with it's impossible to have one without the other? Remember, God, God made the heavens and the earth, He decreed the fall. He decreed the salvation of a people so that he might manifest for all eternity both his wrath and his mercy, right? I mean, when, when your child asks you that question when they're like three, four, five, six, seven, however, however old they are, God, if, if uh, daddy or mommy, if God knew that Adam was going to fall and sin against him and many people would go to hell, why did he create them? Right? That's, well, that's a question a lot of people ask, not just children. And how do you answer them? With the teaching of, Revela of, uh, well, of Revelation 11, but I was thinking of Romans 9, where it speaks of those vessels prepared beforehand to display God's wrath and those other vessels prepared beforehand to display his mercy. That's why God created everything, to show the totality of his perfection. Thus, the presence of God's ark brings to mind both the salvation of God's people and destruction of his enemies. All right, well, the 10 or so minutes left, let me summarize this teaching with two observations. Observation number one. There is coming a day when every person will give an account. Brother, this is a classic text on the second coming of Jesus the bodily resurrection, and universal judgment. Listen to me, all that happens at the same time. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
to put it as plain as I can, to come up with some end time system that puts big gaps between all of those events. Jesus comes back, he raises the dead. Some go to heaven, some go to hell. That's the end times made simple. That's the Bible end times made simple. And that's the end times seven times over in Revelation. Man, you'd think we'd get it, brother. Seven times over in the book of Revelation, we have that same pattern. Jesus comes the first time, and he purchases salvation. Jesus comes a second time, and he brings salvation. And there's not a third time. Death is not the end. Okay, that's a main point here, isn't it? The time of the dead that they should be judged. Now think, I I mean, maybe in your mind you have the 13 clear New Testament texts that speak about Jesus' second coming and the universal resurrection of all men and the judgment of all men and heaven and hell that follows. All men will be judged. That means the righteous and the wicked. But notice, notice this passage makes a beautiful distinction because it describes or it associates our judgment with reward. And this is why the judgment of God, the judgment of Christ when he comes back, it's just. It's just both with regards to the wicked. They're going to be repaid justly for their deeds. They were angry. They destroyed the earth. They rightly become the recipients of God's wrath and they'll be destroyed just as they destroyed the earth. But you know what? Just as just is the judgment of the righteous. Do you remember what, the, uh, what Hebrews says? 6.10 I think it is. For God is not unjust to forget your deeds, your labor and deeds of love which you've shown towards the brethren. Brother, here's the bottom line. It would be unjust of it would be unjust of God. It would be unjust of God not to reward his people openly. Because a just God, a just judge, not only punishes evil, but what? Rewards the good. Yes, the good is done by grace, I get it. But nevertheless, it's rewarded, and it's rewarded publicly. Okay, so here it is. How many evil, wicked people die seemingly as victorious? Right? They go to the grave with all that blood money. Trampled over people all of their life. Hated God's, hated God's people. Lived rich. I mean, we, we see it all the time, especially these wicked athletes. It just, ooh, it just bothers me sometimes, brother, to be honest. These guys who are making 150, another guy got signed recently, 180 million for seven years. Ridiculous. But we believe in capitalism, you know. That's fine, I guess. As long as you honor God with it. Because you know what? You can live like you want to live. But death isn't the end. There's coming a day when every person will give an account for what they did in the earth. And if you went to the grave living large with, with, with blood money, you would give an account for every bloody penny. Every bloody penny. Think of it, brother. 
Nobody gets over on God. And this allows us as Christians to endure mistreatment of the world because it's God's place to, 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 to pay back evildoers. God will right every wrong. Not one thought will go unpunished. And think of this. Those who committed those deeds, I don't care how far back you go. Go all the way back to Cain. Cain's body will be raised from the dead and his soul united with it and he will be judged in the same body and soul he committed those sins. The same body. The same body. The same body that killed his brother and shed his blood will be destroyed by God. For eternity. This was actually one of my first um, commentaries I bought on Revelation. I'm not sure how you say his last name. S-E-I-S-S. Sisis. He's a Lutheran and uh, conservative Lutheran. Uh, he died in 1904. And it's very, very, very excellent. And oh boy, when I read this section, it just made my eyes tear up thinking about. Um, the sobriety of this truth. Let's listen to the old Lutheran for a second. He's talking about how the wicked will pay for their deeds in the judgment. There's a resurrection even of the wicked. They that put an end to their existence on earth, resolving not to live anymore, must still live and take the judgment and sentence of heaven for all their deeds. Not one of all the race can escape it. And the time of the dead to be judged is in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. This side, the grave, full justice is never done. And up to the great day, no one receives entirely all his deserts. That is reserved for the period of resurrection. Soul and body having wrought together, shall reap together of what they've sown. Only the resurrection, uh, listen to this sentence, only the resurrection life is full retribution life. Incomplete and unequal are all the administrations here. Many a great criminal dies without having had his guilt so much as known. While perchance innocent ones have had to suffer for his sins. The wicked go unpunished and even at times honored in their crimes. And pass away with no experience to mark how they stand in the estimate of God. Fortunes are made and enjoyed and respected. And their holders held in favorable esteem to the end of their days. Every dime of which is stained with blood corroded with crime and marked with fraud, oppression, and soul-damning deeds of injustice. He goes on for another couple paragraphs to say that a time will come when all wrongs will be righted. And again, brethren, this is encouragement for us to endure mistreatment because at the end of the day, it won't go undealt with. 
But this, th- there's another side to this. Because we'll be raised, and every poor Christian who's been mistreated, maligned, neglected, forgotten, will receive his or her just reward. And he, has, he says that in the next paragraph, in the next point. He says, um, piety may not pay as regards to this world, but it will pay then. Not even the gift of a cup of water to the thirsty shall go unrewarded. Nor loss or pain or labor of love or pang of hardship or tear of sorrow in cured for Jesus or his truth's sake fail of its just recompense. Rewards, rewards for the wrong prophets, for the suffering saints, and for all that fear God, small and great, are in reserve. Jesus hath gone to make them ready. And when the last trumpet sounds, they shall be given. Then shall Paul get his crown of righteousness, and all the apostles take their everlasting thrones. Then shall Daniel stand in his lot and Moses. And he goes on and on and on. Brethren, there's coming a time when every person will give an account. And then a final observation is this. There's coming a day when the ark of the Lord will be seen. Now again, this really goes, I think, at the heart of our reward. And this, of course, takes place in heaven, right? And I want to suggest, thus I want to suggest from the first part of 19, two things about heaven. I think this idea of the temple being opened and the Ark of the Covenant being exposed or seen, it tells us two things about heaven, okay? And let me just summarize them with these words, forgiveness and fellowship. The first is this, heaven will entail the knowledge of complete forgiveness. Of course, this was fundamental, wasn't it, to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was that wooden box that had the Decalogue inside of it, and then they had that slab of gold on top of it that perfectly fit the the wooden box. And once a year, the high priest covered it with blood. And that, of course... That, of course, illustrated the fact that God in Christ would propitiate or would satisfy his wrath for our sins. Forgiveness, brother. This is what the Ark of the Covenant, the the blood-stained, the blood-covered Ark of God's Covenant taught. It, It taught us the need for forgiveness and the provision for forgiveness. Now notice I said there's coming a day when the ark of the Lord, I'm sorry, heaven will entail the knowledge of complete forgiveness. Now by that I don't mean that Christians don't receive full forgiveness until heaven because they receive judicially full forgiveness when they become a Christian. Remember we sang it uh, Sunday in hymn 99. Actually, that was supposed to be hymn 599. I think when I forwarded the hymns, I dropped the five. But, uh, but hymn 99 worked perfectly. 
Uh, but it, let, me, let me just show you to you. I think it's the last, second to last, or it's the last verse. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Brethren, those in heaven right now, let me put it this way. We won't be more forgiven for all, for all eternity in heaven than we are now, right? Judicially, you can't be more justified than what we are. We're perfectly forgiven. We're completely forgiven. Then why is it, Pastor Waters, that you say in heaven we're going to have complete forgiveness? Because remember the word that went before, the knowledge of complete forgiveness. You see, Jesus purchased our forgiveness when he died. He gives us forgiveness when we believe. And to some extent, we know that forgiveness. We have the assurance of that forgiveness. But brethren, the knowledge of our forgiveness, the assurance of our forgiveness now is very incomplete. Oh, there's a sense in which to keep with the imagery of verse 19. We can see into heaven in some sense by faith through the scriptures. And we can see into the temple. And we can see that blood-stained Ark of the Covenant. But we only see it very dimly. And our knowledge of it is very faint. There's coming a time, brethren. This is what the point here is. There's coming a time when we will know. We will have the assurance. The knowledge of our forgiveness. In a way that we don't have it now. We will know that we're forgiven. We will know that we're accepted. And we'll have the joys and the benefits that come with that knowledge. And that assurance multiplied for all eternity. Oh, to God, brethren, that we had more faith to, as it were, look into this open temple. You know what? We can look into the open temple now. You know how? Revelation eleven nineteen. Revelation eleven nineteen tells us that in heaven, you know what? Those who've gone before, you know what they're praising God for in heaven? Do you remember? Back, look back to chapter 5 in part. You are worthy. Verse 9. To open its seals, for you were slain, and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you've made us kings and priests to our God. In other words, those saints in heaven have the, the complete knowledge of their sins being forgiven. And so too, brethren, so shall we, ere long. Heaven will entail the knowledge of complete forgiveness. Secondly, heaven will entail the enjoyment of complete fellowship. Again, we have fellowship now. We have fellowship with with God just as we have forgiveness with God. And by the way, forgiveness and fellowship necessarily go together. But our, but our fellowship with God now is very incomplete. Remember the Ark of the Covenant not only spoke of God's gracious salvation in Christ, but also his gracious covenantal presence among his people. Here's heaven in a nutshell. We'll have the knowledge, the perfect knowledge of salvation 
and the perfect, complete fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit for all eternity. That's heaven. I think we can downplay the benefits of, uh, of a look into the open temple and a sight of this Ark of the Covenant. I think we can downplay the benefits of that now and presently. We ought to look, brethren, by faith into heaven, into the open temple, and see there that blood-stained Ark of the Covenant. And we ought to also know now that God is with us and he won't leave us nor forsake us. But brethren, what is all that in comparison to what awaits? It's not unto heaven when the temple shall be opened and we behold the ark of his covenant that we shall have complete knowledge of forgiveness and complete unending Everlasting fellowship with God in Christ by Spirit. And in closing, brethren, remember, this is what John wants these poor Christians to know now while on earth. This is what their beloved family members are enjoying, and this is what they too shall, ere long, enjoy as well. May God give us eyes to look, as it were, through this text into the open temple and behold the ark of the Lord's covenant. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing one last hymn.